Hi, I'm Gideon Spanier, UK Editor-in-Chief at Campaign, and welcome to the Campaign Podcast. Now, this week, I've been down to the YouTube Festival, which took place in Coco in Mornington Crescent. So YouTube were presenting to advertisers, and I've got an interview with Phil Miles, the Managing Director of YouTube Sales, and Nishma Patel-Rob, who's the Senior Director of Marketing at Google UK. Super interesting conversation, but before that, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what our company, Haymarket, is up to because we've launched a new title, PodPod, from the makers of Campaign. And the editor, Adam Shepard, is here. Hi, Adam. Hello, Gideon. And so we're in a podcast studio appropriately because PodPod is all about podcasting. So tell us a little bit about PodPod. So PodPod is a new editorial brand that is all about the craft and business of podcasting. So we're looking not just at the creative processes that go into making a podcast, but also how you make a podcast into a viable business. How do you grow a podcast? How do you grow the listeners? How do you grow the revenue? But for advertisers and media agencies and marketers, how do you tap into that rich and highly engaged audience that podcasts have? What's the most effective way to spend your budget for the maximum impact? What can you get out of podcast advertising? What's the value that it can offer? So PodPod is a a podcast, a website, there's daily email bulletins, there's events as well. But when you uh, think about the podcast as a podcast brand, what, uh, who, who can we expect to hear or who have we been hearing from? Mm. So PodPod is an audio first brand. And as part of that, we have got some excellent guests lined up. Uh, we have had Deborah Meaden and Alistair Campbell already for the first two episodes, uh, the most recent of which was Alistair Campbell, who we had on talking about his show, The Rest is Politics with Rory Stewart. So he actually had some really interesting takeaways about podcasting and the process of podcasting. One of the more significant things for me was that he said that podcasting is not only the medium that has given him the most freedom as a as a uh, speaker and a commentator and a, a public figure, but also it's the one that's gotten him the most audience engagement and the most response. And and in addition to that, we also have some really good episodes coming up from the likes of the Empire Film Podcast and the guys behind Spotify original podcast, Decode. So look out for those in your podcast feeds. Yeah. And I have to say, when we both went to the IAB podcast upfronts, and people will know that, especially from the campaign side of things, the campaign audience knows that the upfronts of presentations generally by media owners and platforms talking about what is upcoming that advertisers might like. Uh, There was some really exciting content. There was John Sopel from the newsagents who was talking about that show, which they've created for Global. And Dino Sophos, who is the producer of that show, who we will also be having on the PodPod podcast. Yeah. And I think the the sense that it's it's, it's a really exciting and changing canvas So James Chandler from the IAB was talking about how it's not an emerging medium, it's emerged. And in some ways, I think that's right. But actually, just the fact that we're talking about a lot of these podcasts, and even it came up at the IAB upfronts, a lot of them are really new. It's not as if there are many podcasts which have been going 10 years. This is some a year, two, three years. It's it's quite an exciting new frontier. Mm. There are actually a fair few real 
long-standing stalwarts of the podcast industry that have laid the groundwork for the explosion in podcasts that we've had over the last couple of years. So it's really interesting to contrast that with the the sort of, if you like, the upstarts of the podcast industry who have flocked to the medium in the last kind of 12 to 24 months and really how those two audience profiles differ, uh, where they kind of overlap, but also how the approaches differ in terms of the creation and monetization and promotion of those shows. Uh, last thing, given that we're talking maybe about advertising, monetization, have you spotted any trends? I know Spotify recently had their financial results. Any trends that you can see, given that these aren't the easiest times for the world economy? Yes, absolutely. Uh, so in terms of monetization, the traditional model for podcasts is that sort of host read play where you've got a specific set of marketing copy that you'll have the hosts read out and sort of inject with their own kind of personality and enthusiasm, which has been a very historically successful uh, monetization method for podcasters. But one of the really interesting trends we're seeing from the media buyer perspective is actually a real growth in interests in branded podcasts and wholly owned media. So looking at what brands can actually bring to an audience that's wholly original, right? Rather than buying in someone else's audience, actually creating an audience of their own based on their own expertise and passions and really using that as a platform to drive whatever campaign outcomes they might want to achieve. But that's something that's picked up real traction recently. And it's going to be really interesting to see how that develops in contrast to more, for want of a better word, traditional forms of podcast advertising. Yeah. And Again, at the upfronts, we saw and heard from the National Lottery and they worked with a Love Islander. Mm. And it was saying that for people who are old enough to remember and plenty aren't, the National Lottery was founded 30 years ago. And lots of people who were not born then mm. and getting a new audience, people who are going to encounter this on TikTok or other platforms rather than and a podcast rather than uh, for the sake of argument, watching it on TV for mm. the draw. Uh, that that's really important. And a pot, they saw a podcast as a way that would really engage. And I think it is interesting. We're excited about PodPod. And we'll, I'm sure because it's our plan that we'll collaborate with Campaign and PodPod working together to try and tell these stories about actually how do creative people make money? Mm. So speaking of which, uh, I should highlight that the National Lottery podcast uh, that you mentioned is being produced in partnership with a wonderful branded podcast studio called Fresh Air, who are one of our launch partners with PodPod, along with the IAB UK, Newsworks, Acast, and Audio UK, who are the trade body for audio professionals. So thank you very much to all of those uh, launch partners for supporting PodPod in its first days. Right. Well, thanks, Adam, for joining us. And now on to my conversation with YouTube. So I mentioned there was the YouTube Festival. They took over Coco in Mornington Crescent. Munya Chihuahua was the host, the comedian. He was fantastic. Uh, there was also Sam Smith, who was gave an interview and then performed. But I think 
some of the best content actually came from for their advertising and marketing professionals on stage. So here's my conversation with Phil Miles, the Managing Director of YouTube Sales, and Nishma Patel-Rob, Senior Director of Marketing for Google UK. Welcome to you both. Hi. Hello. So the reason we're chatting is YouTube's hosted its biggest face-to-face event since before lockdown in the UK, the YouTube Festival. And this was an event at Coco in Camden in London. Nishma, give us the headlines on the, the event and why you've, why you've run it. Yeah, well, thanks, Gideon. And it's so wonderful to have events back in person, first one since 2019. And it is a festival. YouTube Festival is really, I suppose, it's, a, it's the opportunity of bringing the very best of YouTube and its creators and the stories of how that's really working for advertisers. So on stage, we've had... Manya Chihuahua, which um, I hope all you and all of our listeners to this podcast have are familiar with his work. And if not, please go check him out. He's an incredible YouTube creator. He was our host of the night. Um, we had musical performance by Sam Smith. And we were joined on stage with some um, key executives from Channel 4 and Sky. And it was a really great way of being able to showcase the best of YouTube, the most diverse and brilliant content that really is I suppose, driving creativity and culture in the UK. Um, I was also on stage as part of the um, proceedings and I was sharing a little bit about some mirrors, some research called Mirrors and Windows, which is some brilliant research for every marketeer, which we encourage you to go and check out on Think with Google, but was is a really in-depth report in looking at how um, usage, I suppose, really kind of perceptions of individuals around media and their choices and identity. And as a marketeer, I really valued this research before um, we were kind of really designing it in our show because it's a great way of being able to understand how to reach everyone in that really authentic way. And there's nothing better than YouTube is in a reflection as a mirror to the UK and all the different types of people and interests there and a window into the world that perhaps more curious in. So uh, never wanting to be pigeonholed or in a box I managed to share quite a breadth of stories around my favorite YouTube creators and uh, how we're engaging with them. And I think that's really critical. You know, this idea of not just about ethnicity, but LGBTQ plus or disability, being able to see themselves both as creators or as a user on the YouTube platform and finding their, their special content. So, yeah, brilliant. Wonderful to do it in person and lovely to bring the magic of YouTube to life. And an amazing venue like Coco. And just, um, I've got some stats in front of me, but we, we, there, there are, as you so hinted at, people who uh, identify as Asian, Black, or from uh, other ethnic groups visiting YouTube and feeling that this is a, a place where they can get content that's relevant and relatable for them. Uh, it, it, do you want to spell anything out about that? And it's, it's the, I mean, the research shows 95% of people who identify, you know, as you say, Asian, Black, of mixed or multiple ethnic groups are visiting YouTube at least once a month. It's over 91% for LGBTQ plus and 85% for disabilities. And I would challenge uh, whether there's any other media that really comes close in terms of that kind of reach and engagement. I think what's really incredible about this, and I share, um, I shared a bit of this story on stage at the festival, is, you know, there's there's very few places I can say that I can genuinely see all of my interests reflected. So this isn't about a tick box diversity test. This is about saying where do the interests of individuals 
reflected. And at the moment, you know, the reality is, is a lot of these stories aren't shared on, whether it's broadcast TV or in publishing, wherever it may be. And we, for all sorts of reasons, but the fact that YouTube has no barriers to entry or very, very low barriers to entry, it really is a case of, you know, if you've got a camera and a story and or and a craft to share, you can get on YouTube and find your audience. So I talked about, you know, Parley Patel, who's a, a creator that I particularly love, who's been incredibly galvanizing for my family across generations. You know, he's a Gujarati, uh, British-born Gujarati um, creator. He's a comedian. He's a dancer, etc. And I would never and never have done have discovered, you know, creators that talk to perhaps culture and identity. And my kids love him. My parents love him. And it's been a real kind of thing in our community. But it's small and niche. And it wouldn't have been commissioned elsewhere. That's reality. But he has a huge and really deeply engaged following. But then there's also, you know, there's Trini, who I love for a bit of live fashionistas or learning how to DJ, you know, particularly having picked up digital decks recently. It's great to get on YouTube and do that. And I think that's the the research shows not just it's a home for creators, it's where users are going to find that content because they don't find it anywhere else. That's where they're going to engage with that content. And I think that's really important when we look at you know, the beautiful makeup of the UK and the fact that it's not only going to be less than 10 years where, you know, the majority of representation in the UK will be a lot more diverse and mixed than it is today. They'll be able to find media on that way that allows to talk to interest is so critically required when you're looking at your effectiveness of marketing. Very interesting. Now, Phil, um, the cr- creators don't necessarily do this just for their, because they've got a voice they want to make money, they can make money. So you've got a second piece of research, which you talked about the, if you like, the value of YouTube. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, as Mr. was saying, um, you know, what we're doing with YouTube is giving kind of creators an opportunity to build an audience um, on, uh, on YouTube. Um, and that audience is, those creators are often people who wouldn't necessarily have had an opportunity to have got commissioned in this sort of traditional in the traditional sense, um, and as a result, of course, they represent you know that sort of diversity um, of the UK in all of its um, you know in all its shapes and sizes. Now, you know, one thing as well about that is that because of that diversity of content, we you we attract the whole of the UK um, to YouTube um, as well. And actually, um, only four percent of the UK doesn't come to YouTube on a on a monthly basis. Um, and as you say, that's having an impact as well from a, for a you know from from a, from an economic perspective. And and we're sharing uh, we shared at a festival um, that the economic contribution of YouTube in the UK is um, 1.4 billion um, pounds, um, and that we actually support um, 40,000 jobs um, in the UK, which is a actually double the number of people that are employed um, by the BBC. So what you can see there is that the UK is having a sorry YouTube in the UK is having a really big kind of contribution to the overall sort of creator economy. And obviously creative industries is something that the UK has um, has always led in. And increasingly, you know, YouTube is is really at the heart of that. So that's something that we're really that we're really proud of. Now let's imagine by the way, the research came uh, was done by the consultancy Oxford Economics. Am I right? Yes. Let's imagine I decided either to quit campaign or just launch my own YouTube channel and there's, I got a sufficient kind of audience that people were enough people were watching. So uh, I'm just going to use a ballpark number and say I've got a million views a month. Uh, 
as a creator. And uh, to give me a clue about what kind of money I might generate directly from advertising from uh, by putting my content onto YouTube. I'm not necessarily going to give you a number in terms of the amount of money that you'd earn, but I think one thing that's probably not well known in the industry that, and that's this number, which is that for every pound that is spent on YouTube um, by advertisers, 55% goes directly to the creator, whether that be a, you know, a, a YouTube creator kind of like starting out, um, you know, once they've, once they've got a certain number of kind of like, you know, you know, reached a certain level so that they can start to join our monetization program or, or if they're a kind of um, professional content owner um, as well. So, so that's, that gives you some sense of the contribution, you know, you know as, as you start to grow, you know, you know, 55% of all the ad revenue that your content, um, uh, you know, appears against effectively kind of like goes to the creator. Quite like the idea of Gideon. I think you should set yourself up as a YouTuber. <laughs> yeah, I know my limits. Obviously, Campaign has a YouTube channel, and um, we do lots of video content. But yeah, I'm uh, I'm loyal to Campaign, and I'm not going to be the face of Campaign on YouTube. Uh, I can put a few numbers out there just for uh, everyone's interest. So, the 9th of October, two thousand and six, was when. Google bought YouTube for $1.65 billion. In the first half of 2022, YouTube had over $14 billion of revenue. So we can do a little bit of math and think, well, you're going to be around $30 billion in revenue this year. So that shows just how big YouTube's got uh, a $30 billion a year um, revenue business, which uh, of which uh, we must assume a reasonable amount is from the UK. I, I won't ask you to tell us, but because uh, you won't tell me, I'm sure. <laughs> um, but it gives a sense that YouTube is a, a significant player. Sorry, one thing, Gideon, and yeah, you're right, we're not going to share the numbers in detail on that, but I think one thing that is really critical about this is the numbers that Phil just shared about what we share about the creators and things mm. about the creative economy in the UK. And my point earlier around the fact that we you know, really do reflect modern, diverse Britain, which is really how we term it, which I love that term, is the fact that when advertisers are spending, and I think there is this consciousness when I talk to my colleagues in the marketing industry, around the fact that what you're spending is funding um, that kind of continuous opportunity of creativity for a broader set of people. So particularly where you can see creative funding, you know, perhaps drying up and not being as prevalent, whether it's in schools or in society actually funding creativity is really critical and also particularly some of these diverse communities where we're seeing huge impact you know actually whether it's a manya chihuahua or stuff of diamond black panda or others i think that's really important value just coming in on that as well Munia um is you know talked a little bit about that at the festival you know in terms of like his his, his personal experience and the feeling that you know how hard it was for him to kind of start out as a creator and, and, and how YouTube gave him that kind of unique opportunity. So um, that's, a, that's a really important story from, from Festival. Yeah, that's, it is interesting. And we interviewed him in November 2020, and uh, it felt like, uh, obviously, that he's got his own, if you like, career trajectory, but lockdown was good in some ways. In many ways, it was bad for people being able to, number one, use social and other platforms to reach audiences and also we wanted a bit of humor uh, to help us cope 
and but they they are interesting points. I'm I want to move on to the sort of role of where YouTube fits into the broadcast ecosystem. Uh, or should, sorry, I should say the video and broadcast ecosystem. And it's interesting. You've got Channel Four and Sky, um, sort of speaking. I I was just on YouTube. And uh, as always, I look at the ads for multiple reasons. And um, the, the pre-roll before when I went on yesterday, there was a Channel 4 ad followed by a Paramount Plus ad. So I was like, here are two broadcasters and they are, just by coincidence, advertising on YouTube in the UK. Now, once upon a time, if I go back to 2015 and when I remember going to a huge brandcast event in Battersea, which was the sort of precursor to the YouTube festival, it, there was a sense that it was YouTube versus TV. Now, your sort of approach has evolved over time. And even at the big upfronts, which are the advertising sales um, pitches in in New York for the first time this year. YouTube and the established broadcasters were effectively uh, taking part at the same time. YouTube took part for the first time. So, where does YouTube sit in an ecosystem where, in Britain, people still think of BBC, ITV, Channel Four, Sky? I um. So, I think this is an area where we consciously really try to be part of the wider TV ecosystem, as opposed to kind of like, you know, as you say, this, this idea of versus television. I think we very much see ourselves as being kind of part of um, an evolving sort of modern sort of TV kind of landscape, which increasingly I think you have to accept has YouTube um, as part of it. I mean, one of the things that we were sharing at Festival is that 30 million people in the UK now um, watch YouTube on the TV screen in the living room at least once a month. Um, and I think as a result of that, and it's kind of back to the, you know, we didn't really answer your question a minute ago about, you know, what's kind of driving this is the, it's the consumer, I think really kind of kiddie and the consumer is, is, um, is radically kind of like shifting in terms of the way that they view. Um, and I think you end up with this kind of interesting conversation about kind of what is TV in effectively 2022? You know, is it a device? Um, is it a certain type of content? Um, is it uh, a certain set of broadcasters? Because, you know, as you say, you've got, you know, channel four who we've done a, extended deal with this year putting more of their content onto youtube you know when you watch say sky on your mobile what do you you know are you watching television um and then obviously of course youtube when you watch that on the tv what are you watching kind of you know i would say you're watching you're watching tv so i think you've got this really kind of like you know emerging sort of modern sort of tv landscape that i think youtube is clearly kind of part of and i think the the agencies also are, are adjusting to this as well another thing that we talked about at festival, we had um, Luke Boziat from uh, Mediacom on stage talking about One AV. Um, we also had um, Omnicom, you know, sharing some of the stuff that they're doing around kind of this shift, effectively, from what is a kind of you know classic kind of TV approach to sort of more of a AV approach based on this kind of emerging, you know, TV, video, and digital kind of like um, digital piece. So um, I think that's uh, you know very much a kind of you know an, an important part of you know how ha, ha, how we're evolving actually as a as, as an industry don't know if you've got anything you want to come in on there nishma no i think i think that's as you said i think that's, it's the evolution it's the user-led approach of what's really interesting and i think it's not just about content it's about formats and devices and lifestyles as well that's really reflected yeah, I, I, one little kind of story on that, that I always come back to a little bit is just how 
um, you know, like sport, I think is a really interesting area at the moment, right? So you've got the emergence of kind of sort of fan TV, I suppose, over the last kind of few years and how that is actually is huge, obviously, on kind of like platforms like like YouTube, but also is influencing now how the, you know, the likes of Sky and BT Sport do their do, do their coverage of sport. So you see this kind of bleeding together effectively of kind of like the different kind of genres. And I think as an industry, it's interesting because, you know, I, as a football fan, you know, and I'm an Arsenal fan, you know, I'll obviously watch the live game on Sky. I'll also watch, um, you know, Arsenal fan TV, you know, and I think it's just interesting for us to think as an industry, like how do we think about, you know, the audience of that as opposed to just specifically kind of the, you know, the content. And at the moment, of course, we value as an industry, the view on the traditional game much more than we do the view on the, on the fan TV. But again, I think that's something that's interesting for us to kind of continue to, to think about. All right. Well, I'm going to reveal I'm an all, also an Arsenal fan and Arsenal fan TV uh, has ad- adopted a hybrid model with uh, a subscription paid for element. So the campaign also uh, is a believer very much in a paid for journalism model. So let me uh, sort of throw down a challenge to you uh, and knowing also a little bit about how YouTube is evolving as well. Is really an ad funded model or a pure ad funded model? Does it make sense for the creation of high quality content and what you know, YouTube's thinking in, in that space? Yeah, I think, you know, it's interesting you talk about kind of high quality content model, because actually I think it's about there's a breadth of whether it's production values, whether it's, you know, the, the style and ways of doing it. And that's, I think, again, reflective of what users want. So do I think an ad funded model kind of doesn't allow that level of investment of creativity? I, I would disagree with. I think what the ad funded model is creates an opportunity of both both breadth of creators and a breadth of formats and production styles and quality as well which i think is what people demand you know i love the idea that i can watch youtube shorts which i will do at certain points in the day because i want to engage in that kind of short bite-sized thing and it's discovery and then i go in to other content in the kind of broader youtube um library of content and i'm going to see a breadth of, of formats and and styles there and actually if you were, we were talking about money earlier in many respects, someone like Amanya wouldn't have been able to, and his his production skills and talent and creativity has evolved significantly over time. And that's really come from an ad-funded model. And I wonder if actually ad-funded allows greater democracy versus the opportunity of actually there. I don't think it's about the funding level. I think it's opportunity that it creates. Just building on the Munya point, he um, he's going to talk at festival about how actually he as a creator is starting to change the way that he creates, recognizing that more of the views of his content is coming on the TV screen. Um, and I think that's a really interesting evolution, like creators and, and that recognition as well, that there's an expectation on YouTube particularly that the quality of the content um, uh, needs, to be, need, need, needs to be higher. And that's something that he's, he's adjusting to. Yeah. Well, that's a big screen thing though, Phil, one thing else, because actually it's interesting to yeah. see, how, you know, the fact that we have... It's such a significant amount of viewership now of YouTube is on the big screen, the living room screen. I think that kind of lends itself well, but you can watch vertical as well as horizontal content there. When you think about your pitch to advertisers and agencies, 
who do you see as your competition? Who else are you thinking about? Whether they, it, it could be also people that you collaborate with. You know, I think the reality is that because of our, um, because of the breadth of the solutions that we have, as you say, you know, we've got YouTube Shorts. You know, we've also got kind of, um, uh, you know, you know, solutions that are kind of like, you know, huge in the in the living room. Then, um, you know, it's clear that kind of, you know, we're we're operating at kind of m- multiple areas of of, of the advertiser um, ecosystem. I think that, you know, Shorts is relatively new. Um, and, you know, we're only just, just right now starting to kind of test, um, uh, the, you know, the advertising proposition around short. So it's, so that's really, really nascent. Um, and obviously it's going to evolve over the next, um, couple of years because the kind of user adoption is, 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 is huge. And as, as we've tended to kind of like, as a business, we've tended to focus on the consumer first and, you know, build, build audience and then start to think about what the advertising opportunity is. So it's still quite early for shorts. Um, and I think, you know, right now, you know, our focus is, um, you know, certainly from a kind of festival perspective, we're, we're focusing a little bit more on, um, that, that role that we play, um, in terms of the, um, the sort of, uh, you know, within, within the kind of the video industry in the, in the UK and the, the big screen and the, the growth that we're seeing, um, in the, in the living room. One thing I'm interested in Gideon is, is also the, the, what we do see on YouTube in terms of, um, Sort of culture, important kind of cultural moments, effectively that happen on that happen on YouTube, and one one that happened very recently was the Sidemen charity football match. And I want I wonder if that's something that you're that you're aware of. I'm not. You're not. Well, I think I think this is really interesting because I've asked this question of like a number of journalists in the you know the stuff that we've been doing around around festival, and nobody has heard of the Sidemen in those in those conversations or about or about the Sidemen charity football match, which I think is really interesting for us industry now just to just 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 to kind of educate the audience for those that don't know um that the sidemen are one of the largest channels on on youtube in the uk if not the largest uh, most famous uh, representative uh, member of the sidemen is uh, is ksi and they put out a video kind of about once a week um they get about seven eight nine million views um a week on that video sometimes though you know when they do kind of you know with other people they can get up to 15 million views anyway a couple of weeks ago they did a, a charity football match which was a sidemen 11 versus a sort of youtube all-stars um 11 and uh, they sold out charlton athletic football ground for this um char- charity sort of amateur football match twenty-seven thousand seats had a 23 million views so far and counting it might it might have gone up higher by the time this goes out um, and more people watch this game live on uh, on YouTube than watch the Champions League final. And I think it's just really, I think that's really interesting that, you know, YouTube also is able to create these sort of really quite, you know, quite important sort of like cultural moments on the platform um, that are huge in the UK, but also sort of seem to sit under the radar a little bit of, um, of the UK kind of media industry. Um, you know, I would say it's probably fair to say that the Sidemen is one of the, you know, the biggest things that happens on British TV on a weekly basis, um, but is not of not known by many people, right? And I think that's really fascinating. Well, all I can say is clearly we should spend more time watching YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I've got a, a question about the advertising experience. Now, YouTube is largely ad-funded. sometimes I find the ad load seems really quite high. And I wondered how much do you alter the ad load 
what should we know about the ad load? Because I find it quite interruptive. I was watching Emilia de Moldenberg and she had a six or seven minute, um, you know, chicken shop date. And halfway through there was an ad. And okay, maybe, but it, it's, it feels to me sometimes as if it's more interruptive than I would like. It's something that we're always looking at, you know, in terms of like testing out different, different approaches, you know, looking at potentially kind of like, you know, more ads, running the ads just at the front, um, trying to reduce that kind of like, you know, that interruption as you, as you say. So it's something that we are, um, you know, actively testing and, and looking at um, all of the time. But in theory, there's no actual rules that you need to observe about ad minutage or equivalent. You you can you've got the flexibility, unlike linear broadcast TV, to do up to a point what you want, right? Yeah, I suppose in that sense, we don't have that same restriction of as you say in terms of broadcast that has X amount of minutes to do that. But the reality is, is if we if we do increase the load to the point that you're going to upset the viewer, then we will have. We're not going to see that effectiveness and we are going to see that kind of challenge on our viewership. I think the one thing I would say, and it is about getting the balance right, but again, from a marketing point of view, is the tools we offer around some of the sequencing of stories, the way you can pull your creative through and around that placement and sometimes that frequency of showing it. So again, not being interruptive and disruptive to the user, which we do always need to keep an eye on and there's quite a lot of tech and algorithm in the background monitoring that but I think from a creative point of view it's like having a new tool set they're being able to tell your story particularly which is really challenging in I would say social which we don't look at YouTube as social YouTube's video but in that same kind of short second formats you can end up as a marketer often shouting rather than being able to kind of show and tell and actually what we do is you still get the kind of efficacy of of short formats but in a way to be able to sequence in a way that becomes really effective in terms of storytelling and where we see that engagement that's not disruptive to the user is when we get the match right you know when you you actually find brilliant creative stories matched with great content people want the interruptive piece of that advertising and of course there's still skippables and things within there as well but I, I, I hear you. I think it's something we have to be really mindful of but we're not held to the same rules admittedly but we, we create our own rules you know around we don't want to lose our users. You know, it's always user first. And I've got one last question, which is something that a lot of marketers are, are always worried about. And that is, is YouTube a safe place to advertise? And if so, why? I think, you know, so we, we've been on a real journey here. Um, Gideon, I've, I've been in this role now for uh, for three and a half years. Um, and when I started off, that was like, that was the number one question from, from, from every advertiser, you know, in terms of like, you know, could we, could we trust YouTube? And I think that we really have, um, worked hard to kind of earn that trust over, over the last, over the last three and a half years to the extent that I think we can say that YouTube is a, is a safe place for, for brands. Um, and I think that kind of like the, probably the, the strongest thing is the, the accreditations that we've had, you know, we have the, we have the highest level of accreditation from GARM, um, and from the MRC. Um, and I think that within, you know, within, you know, within the online platforms, we do have, you know, the strongest record on, on, on brand safety. That's not to suggest that we take that, you know, for granted or that we are, you know, you know, we, we know that it's something we have to keep working on, but I do think that we've, we have earned the trust of the, the, the large advertisers in, in the UK who, you know, 
pretty much all of them, which are, are, are using are using YouTube and are increasing um, their investment with us, you know, because because we've been able to, to earn that trust. Yeah, and I think, Gideon, gosh, we've talked about this over the years, and I think where where I stand now, both as both sides of the fence, as marketeer and as you know, as, as platform owner, is the efforts we put in, both in terms of investment on technology and on people around the safeguarding of the content and the policies we have. So we have, you know, we talk about it as kind of four R's, which is about removal. You know, really expeditious kind of removal of content when it breaks any of our policies there's the piece to kind of really reduce the prominence of content that may not completely break the policy but it's getting close to the kind of it's getting close to the wind on that there's then the kind of lifting up which is raising up brilliant quality content so if i come in and search for something on youtube actually i'm getting presented with content from the bbc and from sky etc particular kind of newsworthy interest things so you're raising up what we would see as kind of authoritative um, resources and then of course you know making sure that the that, that really kind of robust way we keep looking at, at how that's that's done it's an open platform you know which is why we see the wonderful benefits we do in terms of reflective modern diverse britain but actually the tools and technology that's there is really making a difference you know the fact that actually we have a stat is it 95 percent 99 percent actually even of some of the content of let's say kind of terrorist or violent nature doesn't even make it to the platform gets caught before it's even then and we just that has to be the innovation in both product has to and technology and tools to protect have to keep pace with users and i think that's the bit that we can five years on look back and say there's been real progress in that so as a marketeer yes absolutely being in the right environment is critical um but it's also now recognizing that that's you know there's a wonderful environment to be in, but we are safeguarded by the policies that exist there. Okay, my very last question is, it may depend on my consumption of YouTube, right? And you can tell I do use YouTube quite a lot. Sometimes I'm like, how many times am I going to have to see this ad? And I think, is there some frequency capping that is happening or not? Because what advice do you have for advertisers to advertise better? Because you know, I feel sometimes, again, we know bombardment is an issue that was raised by the Advertising Association that you can sometimes get really you know, turned off by uh, too many ads uh, and not, not, just the, not just the lots of ads every so often, but the same ads. So any word on that? I mean, no one wants to be bombarded with ads, particularly if they're bad ones. I think maybe I have a slightly different bias view of when it's great advertising. I don't really mind seeing them so much. I think it is about working in partnership with what, where do we as consumers have that tolerance and level of, of acceptance? Because things have evolved so much and even the types of advertising we're now presented with are different. I think it's that kind of balance between what do users want and what does the platform offer in terms of the controls and the balance of that frequency and the opportunity to skip past it. Because you don't, we don't, we, what we don't, you know, there are obviously now you can buy subscription services to block ads. But you're also looking at, say, for example, the new Netflix model of being able to kind of have a hybrid model. I think it is about recognising what great advertising, you know, actually when you start, well, I know we've done this previously as research and you stop people and people can grumble. Everyday users will grumble about advertising to start with. And as soon as you say to them, well, can you name a favourite ad? And people really come to life about great advertising. So I suppose I'm a campaigner of 
brilliant advertising, not poor advertising, well-targeted and managed. And part of being well-targeted managed is reaching the right audiences, but reaching them in a respectful way of frequency with content. So I, I don't think there's a rule of thumb here, but I think it's one that's got to be worked on. Well, I want to say thank you very much to Nishma and Phil. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So once again, thank you very much to Phil and Nishma for joining us on the campaign podcast. And I should point out that the interview we did with them was before uh, the YouTube parent company Alphabet's financial results for the quarter. And those showed that uh, total revenues were up 11%, but YouTube actually suffered a decline of 2%. So it does show the pressure that lots of digital businesses are under at the moment. Campaigns Magazine content is available exclusively for subscribers to visit and you can sign up at campaignlive.co.uk slash membership. And to make sure you don't miss out on other campaign podcast episodes, please follow us wherever you follow your favourite podcasts. Lastly, thank you very much to our producer Aidan Lyons from Rethink Audio and our studio manager Nav Powell. Thanks for listening.